Hey, you ready for this? That makes one of us. <laughs> Man, I am such a dinosaur. I don't know when yellow paper became goldenrod. <laughs> they changed the whole box of colors on me. I got fuchsia and mauve, and I don't know what any of those are. Oh. And I also don't understand why it is that uh, I land on some of the teaching series here that I do because uh, I get up here from time to time, and lately uh, the topics that I land on are all bordering on personal hypocrisy for me. Uh, a few weeks ago, I gave a talk on friendship, and as I said back then, I really do not consider myself to be a very good friend because the people that I love the most often get the least of me. And uh, This week we're talking about strength, and there again, I do not consider myself to be a strong person. And even worse, in a few weeks from now, Mike wanted me to get back up here and talk, of all things, on humility. <laughs> and, uh, and personally, I can't think of a person in the state of South Dakota more qualified to talk about humility than me. <laughs> so if you want to hear an absolutely perfect talk about humility, make sure you come back for that one. And uh, But the only thing that makes it okay for me to talk on topics I don't feel very qualified about, where I always go back to, is years ago when Mike uh, defined evangelism one time as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And if that is the definition of evangelism, then that much I can do. Because we do not need to be perfect messengers in order to carry a message about a perfect God. In fact, what we're going to touch on today is how God, in his infinite wisdom, often chooses the most unlikely messengers in order to transmit his messages. And I think it was Mike, again, that explained that process one time. He compared it to shopping for diamonds in a jewelry store. And if you ever noticed, when they show you a diamond, they put it on a black felt background because the background being plain and flat and black, actually magnifies the brilliance of the diamond. And in the same way, when we carry the message of Christianity to others, God's brilliance is often magnified by our lack of personal brilliance. It's exactly the opposite of what we think it should be, where God chooses unlikely messengers in order to magnify himself. And I really appreciate that because, again, if it was any other way, I don't think I could get up here and do this. But one of the reasons why I don't consider myself to be a strong person is because, like probably a lot of us, I grew up being very fear-based. I am a runner by nature. And from the, as far back as I can remember, I remember having this loud head that bombarded me with worst-case scenarios, what could happen, what might go wrong. And because of that fear, uh, I worried a lot, and that fear was compounded 
by the fact that I didn't grow up big or strong. I was a real skinny kid and very self-conscious about that. I actually was the kid that wore flannel shirts to the beach in the middle of summer <laughs> just to make myself look a little bigger than I was and very self-conscious about uh, being underweight. Uh, I also used to tell people that the only big part of me back when I was growing up was my mouth. <laughs> so, uh, And that's why, as some of you know my story, why it was so easy for me to find a false god in alcohol because one of the main effects I loved that I found in drinking was that alcohol removed fear on contact. It instantly made me 10 feet tall and bulletproof and invisible to police radar. <laughs> and, and that's why the effect that alcohol produced in me, when I found out that it removed fear and gave me that liquid courage, I loved it. Somebody pointed out one time they refer to alcohol as liquid courage. Nobody ever referred to it as liquid intelligence. <laughs> but I can testify for the false strength part of it. And... That's why when I considered getting into Christianity, one of my greatest fears was a fear of weakness because my perception of Christians was that they were weak. My perception of Christ was he was another 98-pound weakling. And once I got my head around the fact that Christ was anything but that, exactly the opposite, the strongest man that ever walked the face of the earth. And you read what he did and the courage he had in facing people that had a lot of ability to do things to him and to say things about him. But in spite of that, he was able, because he was God Almighty, to manifest a lot of strength. And, you know, so... You know, in my case, I still today have this thing that I call reverse anorexia. <laughs> you know, I still look in the mirror and I see this skinny kid looking back at me, and I still can't get my head around being big. The, one of the running gags in our house, you know, is, you know, anytime I manage to show a feat of tremendous strength, like opening the peanut butter jar, it's, ooh, strong like bull, smart like tractor. <laughs> me. We're continuing, as Randy said in this series, uh, sometimes what we like to do out here is re re revisit some of our foundational beliefs. And one of those series that we go back to occasionally is this series we call Acts, where we believe that authenticity and confidence, when we are able to manifest those things, when we understand the gospel, one of the first fruits of that is we learn that it's okay to be honest with God. It's okay for us to be transparent. We don't have to lie to him. We don't have to pretend to be different than we are. We don't have to keep secrets from him. Just the opposite. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence because we have a God who's not only sympathetic, but empathetic. He lived in this world. He wore the same flesh that we wear. He suffered a lot of the same pains and a lot of the same problems that we do. 
So we have a God who understands temptation and pain and problems. And because of that, we can be authentic with him. And we can be confident with him. And the fruits of that ends up that we become transformed from the inside out. And one of the first evidences of that transformation is strength. And that's where we're going to wrap this up today by talking a little bit about that spiritual strength. Uh, last week, J.C. gave this excellent talk, and he referenced uh, Barney Fife and the Cowardly Lion. Uh, you know, I relate to the Barney Fife thing especially. You know, he's, you know I hope everybody's old enough to rem- or at least have seen black and white TV on cable where they re-show the Mayberry RFD show, if not, you know, but I... I decided, you know, as a reminder of my weakness, I brought my one bullet. It's <laughs> like Barney, you know. Eric's still here. He'd probably think, man, if Mark has one bullet in his pocket, he didn't put that in there. He took two handfuls out. <laughs> but, and today we're going to take it in kind of a similar direction. Instead of Barney Fife, we're going to talk a little bit about Superman and Popeye. If you've seen the worship bulletin, we're going to talk a little bit about spiritual kryptonite and spiritual spinach. So hopefully it'll at least make sense before we get out of here. Um, Who do you think of when you think of somebody that you would perceive of as strong? If you think of somebody that you've met in your course of life and you go, you know, that guy... I've known a lot of them that I would call strong, but really what I'm thinking of is tough guys. Especially in my former life, I saw some truly tough dudes. They always say there's two kinds of people in this world, people that start fights and people that end them. (laughs) I knew some of the people that were pretty good at ending them. But it was pretty obvious where their strength came from because they were truly physically strong and physically tough, and it wasn't really a mystery getting your head around the secret of their strength. But I've met other people that didn't have that obvious strength. And the Bible tells some stories like that. One of them, if you think about biblical characters that had strength, it's hard to not go back into the Old Testament and revisit the story of Samson. Samson was a tough guy. But he was, more than that, he was a strong man. And in revisiting that story a little bit, uh, many years ago a friend of mine asked me to do this teaching at his church for for some of the youth. And just in trying to come up with some creative way of communicating it, I actually ended up, I'm no poet. If I am, I'm a poet and don't know it. But I came up with this little poem on Samson just to teach it to some kids, but I thought, well, maybe we'll dust this off because it kind of is a quick way of summarizing the story of Samson. And um, This is the way this goes. It says, Manoah's wife could not conceive, but an angel of the Lord told her what to believe. God gave her the son that he promised all right. He was set aside from birth as a Nazarite. They named him Samson, as in Samsonite the luggage. (laughs) He could not drink nor cut his hair. I like this guy. There's a lot we share. If you think he was buff, then you got it wrong. He was weak, but God made him strong. 
He once killed a lion that tried to have him for dinner. The two locked horns, and Samson came up the winner. You would think such a man would become a success. Who knew that his life would become such a mess? In a Philistine bride he chose to confide. She sold his secrets to the other side. The betray this betrayal served to make him quite mean. So he vowed revenge on those Philistines. By killing thousands, he proved quite abusive, while the secret of his strength remained quite elusive. It would all make sense if he knew karate, but the source of his strength was not in his body. Then he fell for Delilah, a real fox. She tricked him into cutting his flowing locks. Samson was captured. They blinded his eyes. How could he fall for that woman's lies? It's hard to believe in the low points and strife that God does indeed have a plan for our life. Even though he ended up defeated and bald, he still had a mission. By God, he was called. After a time, they quit paying attention, and his hair began gaining a little extension. <laughs> With it returned his physical power. He prayed for strength so he wouldn't cower. To avenge God's enemies of the Jews, Samson had one last mission to do. Even though it would involve the ultimate cost, he wanted to show them whose God was boss. As they worshipped their idols in their huge hall, Samson managed to get rid of them all. He knocked out two pillars with one mighty shove, and even in death he served heaven above. Well, see, this is where, when we get into the story of Samson, I've always loved this because, like so many things in Christianity, you're, when you get into this Bible, you go through the looking glass, and there's so many things in here that are backwards. They're completely opposite of how we think they ought to be. Like, uh, for, you know, like one example of that that we talk about here occasionally is if you send people out to take a picture of a church, 99 out of 100 are going to come back with a picture of what? A building. And you see, if you want to take a picture of a church according to the definition in the Bible, you wouldn't come back with a picture of a building. You'd come back with a picture of the people. God does not build his church out of sticks and stone. He doesn't build his church out of bricks and mortar. What God builds his church out of is flesh and blood. God builds his church out of people. So if you were to photograph Hope Community Church, you wouldn't take a picture of this building. You wouldn't take a picture of this property. What you would say accurately is you would photograph the people and say, this is the this is Hope Community Church. This is the building that Hope meets in. This is the property that Hope meets on. But it's the people that are the church. And or like another example of that is, uh, you know, how God, one of the reasons everything in Christianity is backwards is sometimes we forget that God has a different vantage point than we do. For instance, when a baby is born, what do we all do? We gather around and go, well, here he comes. <laughs> here she comes. 
They don't realize God's on the other hand going, well, there he goes. <laughs> and then when somebody passes away, we all gather again and go, well, there he goes. And we don't realize God's on the other end going, well, here he comes. <laughs> so God's vantage point is often backward. And that's true also in this story of Samson. If you ask somebody to go out and bring back a picture of what you think Samson looked like, how many people would go out and come back with a picture of a pro wrestler or a picture of a weightlifter? Even Hollywood, when they did movies about this, they always picked some roided-out actor and to, to portray Samson. And you see, I believe, and Mike alluded to this a few weeks ago, that I believe to the depths of my soul that Samson looked like a 98-pound weakling with long hair. It's the only thing that makes sense because, you know, I don't think he looked like, you know, Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger, here, take my hand. <laughs> Come with me if you want to live. <laughs> you know, I don't think he looked like Arnold. I think he looked more like Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> because his strength was a mystery. The, the only thing worse than slaying these armies of Philistines was the humiliation factor contained in the fact that, okay, it's bad enough we're getting beat by the thousands. That's bad enough. We're getting beat by this guy? <laughs> it's the same humiliation when they sent out their biggest, baddest, bestest warrior in Goliath. And who comes out to face him down? Some big Jewish guy, the best of the best, special forces? No, David. <laughs> not even old enough to join the army. Little kid, not, not even able to fit into the armor that they had. And when he took down Goliath, that not only scared him, it humiliated him. This guy beat our best guy? We're done. <laughs> We're out. We're out, dudes. And it was the same with Samson because his strength was called a mystery because they looked at this guy and there was absolutely nothing physically about this guy that would account for his strength. So they knew that there was something bigger going on with this guy than just the obvious. And that makes perfect sense to me because that's how God does business, isn't it? See, if, if Samson was big and strong and tough in and of himself, that would account for everything. But God was a little more clever than that, and he continues to be to this day. And that's why, you know, through the course of my life, like I said, I've known some strong people. But when I think of somebody that I would say was strong, the story that I often go back to was a guy that I met many years ago when I was early in recovery, and I was going to these 12-step recovery meetings. And through the course of that, I met a guy that to this day I would consider one of the strongest, toughest guys I ever met. He was a guy named Mike. And Mike at one time was a tough guy. Mike was Italian, and he aspired to be a gangster, and he had he was connected. He knew the guys that knew the guys, and uh, 
So he got into some organized crime types of stuff, and he was a he was a mobster, and he was a criminal, and he knew how to collect money out of people, and he was good at that, and he was a big dude. Uh, they say that at one time he was like 280 pounds and, and really strong and tough, and people were afraid of him. But like all of us, Mike had a fatal flaw. In fact, he had two fatal flaws because he was alcoholic and diabetic. And for anybody that knows anything about medicine, that is not a good combination. At one course in Mike's uh, life, he decided he didn't want to live anymore. So he makes the decision to take his life. And of course, being you know, flawed like the, some of the rest of us, he chose as his method of demise, drinking. Durr. <laughs> he decides that it would be easy to drink himself to death. And that's what he set out to do. So he drinks himself into, an, into a uh, diabetic coma. And unfortunately, he doesn't quite finish the job. So they find him and they bring him to, but unfortunately, the damage was done. So he instantly, almost overnight, shriveled up from 280 pounds and strong and tough down to literally a 98-pound weakling. You saw this guy, he was, he'd walk with two canes and his legs were all bent. And, and the only hint that he had any different life than he was living at that time was he had this huge head. <laughs> you can lose a lot of weight, but the one thing you can't do is shrink your head, apparently. And there's no diet books at Barnes & Noble on how to make your head smaller. <laughs> there might be a tribe down in a rainforest somewhere that can do that for you, but, um, but other, short of that, you're stuck with your big head. <laughs> and so it made him look even more cartoonish because he not only was all crippled up and could hardly walk, but he had this huge head and this scraggly goatee and, and, and it even that, event, you know, that suicide attempt even ruined his vocal cords. So he couldn't even talk right. He, he talked in kind of a whisper and had this really scratchy voice. And, and even when he yelled at you, it came out yeah, just about this loud and he's yelling now. And, but despite all of these physical limitations, I saw this guy back down 300-pound bikers. They were afraid of this guy. You remember that great line in Roadhouse? Anybody cheesy movie fans here? <laughs> Thank you. Roadhouse. Remember that great line in there, you know, where Patrick Swayze is training this group of uh, bouncers at this bar, and he blurts this thing out. He goes, you are the bouncers. I am the cooler. <laughs> See, Mike wasn't just a bouncer. He was the cooler. And I would see him sit in these meetings, and if somebody was acting out or talking smack, he would just take that one of his canes and just wrap it one time on that tile floor, and it sounded like a gunshot going off. But just to get somebody's attention, you just hear this, bang! And they, and then they'd look at him, and he just he didn't even say anything a lot of time. He just give them that look, and they would shut up, they would leave, they back down, and I was fascinated by this because there's nothing about this guy that's scary, but yet people would just they would mind their P's and Q's around this guy. And I thought, wow, how do you get that? And what I came to understand 
was that it wasn't that they were afraid of him. It wasn't fear. It was respect. And again, being through the looking glass in this world, might makes right. If you have the money, if you have the strength, if you have the power, if you have the ability to take it by force, then you you are strong, and in your strength, might makes right. But in the spiritual realm, it's inverted. In the spiritual realm, it's right that makes might. Our strength is contained in the truth. Our strength is contained in the fact that we're right, not because we're tough. And that's what I saw manifested in my friend Mike, was despite all of his physical limitations, he was extremely strong. And that was a, that was a God thing. That was a spiritual thing. And I loved examples like that because what that did was give me hope. It helped me to understand that even despite physical limitations, even despite Fear, a person can still be strong in God. And that's where, uh, you know, as, as we move through this, it leads the question then about what I called here spiritual kryptonite. What exactly is it that keeps us from being strong? Just like Superman, what was his weakness? Kryptonite. He got around that stuff, and what did it do? It zapped his strength. Now, I think we all can relate to that, can't we? There's some things that just drain our batteries, that just zap us of our strength. And isn't it true that the main thing that keeps us from being strong is fear? Now, just as a little aside, you know, that something that I find interesting in here is um, I learned something years ago that, still sticks in my head. And somebody explained one time that if you have an enemy or an adversary that's threatening you, they often tip their hand and reveal what their fears are through the means they use to threaten you. For instance, if you ever ran into somebody who is always threatening to beat you up or beat people up, you know, I'm going to beat this guy up and I'm going to kick his whatever and I'm going to, you know, What's their greatest fear? Well, if that truism is true, probably their greatest fear is getting beat up. They have a fear of physical violence. And because that scares them, their assumption is that ought to scare you too. Uh, If you have somebody who is always threatening to sue people, what's their greatest fear? Probably being sued, losing their property, losing their money. If you have somebody who's always threatening to subject other people to public humiliation, I would venture to say perhaps their greatest fear is exposure themselves. They have their own secrets they're trying to keep. So in making you afraid of that, they're really showing that they're the ones afraid of it. If you have people always threatening to turn you over to the authorities or call the cops on you, perhaps their greatest fear is of authority, having the cops called on them. If somebody's always threatening to kill people, what is their fear? Fear of death. The two main threats that the devil makes against God's people, as we see in the worship bulletin, his two main things that he threatens us with are punishment and death. 
which would lead me to believe that perhaps the greatest two things that the devil is afraid of is punishment and death. Hmm, very interesting. So, it tells us in 1 John 4, it says, This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. And in Hebrews 2, it tells us, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I would certainly agree that those two fears mentioned in the Bible are universal, and they're things, rather we realize it or not, that we all worry about. I heard one time somebody summarize all, they said all of our fears can be summed up in two. Fear of losing something we have or not getting something we want. That's brilliant, isn't it? When I look at all the fears I've had, and to me, at least in my head, there's thousands of them, but it really is that simple. It always comes back to losing what I have or not getting what I want. And that's where these two universal fears, a fear of punishment, a fear of judgment, a fear of death, we all have a fear of that. And it just makes good sense then that if God wants to make us strong, how can he make us strong until he deals with these specific fears? In the same way that Superman, he, he has to be separated from the kryptonite to regain his strength. Samson had to grow his hair back to regain his strength. I think that somehow we need to find a separation from our fears. But what does that look like exactly? You see, what helped me to understand this is when somebody defined courage not as the absence of fear, but the ability to act in spite of it. That's what courage turned out to be. The biggest problem with my fear isn't that I feel it or it makes me feel a certain way, but my problem is it paralyzes me. It keeps me from doing the very things that I need to do. That's the ultimate problem with fear. And you see, I used to pray, God, please remove this fear so I can act. And then I realized perhaps a better prayer is, Lord, please help me to act in spite of this fear. I'm going to feel this. But despite what I feel, help me to do the right thing. And in doing the right thing, only then did the fear start to subside. And you see, that, that really helped me to understand that, you know, maybe the answer wasn't to be separated it so much as to be able to live with it, but not let it control me. See, and that made better sense to me. Again, we're through the looking glass. Intellectually, it didn't always make sense, but practically, it made perfect sense. And I, it leads the question, well, how can fear and strength coincide? 
but yet it makes perfect sense when you look at the practical application because I used to have a lot of fear in here even when things were calm out here. Well, if that could be true, can't the opposite be true too? Can't I have peace in here even if things aren't calm out here? I mean, I've had it the other way. And that's what I had to learn, sometimes painfully, is I can have peace in the midst of the storm. I don't have to wait for the storm to end before I can go, ah. And that's what leads to the second part of this is not only to reduce the fear, but how do you magnify the strength? Where's that spiritual spinach? <laughs> Remember the you know watching Popeye and and he you know things would get tough and he'd be threatened and he'd whip out that can of spinach and swallow it down and the muscles would just pop up and I'm thinking man I got to get me some of that. <laughs> like I said, it used to be able to buy it down at the liquor store, but it kind of quit working. And in you know in absence of that, where do you get that spiritual spinach? Is, what do you ingest in order to make those muscles pop up? And what it tells us in here in 1 Corinthians, and you see here again, like everything else we've talked about today, how backwards this sounds, because I always thought if I do this right, if I learn it right, if I apply it right, the end result is I get stronger, right? I mean, isn't that the whole point of this talk, how to get strong, how to get buff? No. Ironically, what the Bible would seem to indicate is it's harder for us to stay weak. Well, let's see what this says. This is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that why? So that no one may boast before him. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians to write, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see the paradox in there? You see... Ironically, to manifest strength, God's strength, what we need, first and foremost, is to, is to embrace our human weakness. That sounds kind of crazy, but yet again, as you get into it, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You see, 
In Romans, it tells us the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. One of the greatest truths I learned about the grace of God is that grace is dispensed on an as-needed basis. Remember that line, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That's a, that's the, that's Christ pointing back in an object lesson in the Old Testament of the years that the Jews spent in the wilderness, and every day God would give them manna, bread from heaven. But they only were given the portion for that day. So every morning they would go out and gather the portion they needed to sustain them through that day. And if their fear kicked in and they thought, you know, he's been doing this now for 35 years. Every day we come out, there's the food we gather. But I don't know, maybe tomorrow it's not going to be there. So they'd try to take an extra portion. And the Bible clearly indicates if they took more than they needed that day, what would happen? It would rot. It would spoil. It would get wormy. Ugh. So you see, that forced them to develop a daily dependence upon God. They just had to believe that, you know, I've got what I need today, and tomorrow he's going to come through too. How many of our fears are centered in the belief that even though God got us through today, even though God got us through yesterday, even God got us through fill in the blank of number of years you've been on the earth, <laughs> don't have to say it out loud, women, <laughs> but ladies, but how many years has God got us to this point? But yet he might not be there for me tomorrow. And you see, grace is dispensed on an as-needed basis. Our fears are contained in the fact that today I've got this much grace. Why? Because I only need this much. Now, tomorrow I might be facing a scary thing where I need this much grace. And I know I don't have it yet. But my fear is I ain't going to get it tomorrow. But tomorrow comes and that day we are given everything we need to make it work. Give us this day our daily bread. Tomorrow, if we need this much, God's going to give us that much. If tomorrow we need this much, we get that much. But all we have to do is make it to midnight. Tomorrow is another day. I mean, a lot of us are sitting here going, man, I don't know how I'm supposed to retire. I don't know how I'm supposed to cover this bill. I don't know how I'm supposed to pay for this coming up. But yet, how many of us are worried about making it to midnight? You've got enough food in your belly. You've got enough gas in your car. You've got enough money in your pocket. You've got enough of whatever, I'll bet, to make it till midnight. Tomorrow is another day. And I'll bet when tomorrow comes, somehow God is going to work that out tomorrow. But that's tomorrow. But it's so true that if we can just focus on midnight, we know God has already given us everything we need to make this work in the here and now. And even better, he's given us everything we need to guarantee the hereafter. And that also frees us up 
in the same way that it's really scary watching like a sports event, like the Super Bowl. There's a huge difference between watching that live versus watching it on tape after you know your team won. If you know that your team won and now you're watching the game recorded, you don't sweat it if they fumbled. You don't care if they missed that pass. You don't care if they didn't get the fourth down. Why? You know how it ends. <laughs> we have the last pages of our book that tells us how this ends. I don't want to be a you know, spoiler alert. <laughs> you know, you read the last page of the Bible. I don't want to ruin it. You can cover your ears if you don't want to know. <laughs> the good guys win. The good guys win. And you see, we have that comfortable assurance that in the end, the good guys win. In the end, God makes this all okay. And you see, with that comfortable assurance, that promise from God, we don't have to sweat the small stuff. We know where we end up. We know how this all ends. We know that this all leads up to a beautiful finish. And that's where... You know, with that knowledge in mind, how do we make it even to midnight? How do we make it through the day? And you see, what we need to ingest spiritually is not spinach or steroids. What we need to ingest is God. God's spirit, as it says. The more that I get God in me, the byproduct of that is Love. If you have God, you have love. Why? Because the Bible tells us God is love. Now, love is a powerful force. Just like if you eat spinach, the spinach really isn't what makes you stronger physically. It's uh, I think it's got a lot of what vitamin A or riboflavin or you know whatever, whatever is the chemicals or vitamins in spinach is what gives you nutrition. And in the same way, if you ingest God, what God gives you is love. And love is what makes us stronger. I think we all have seen people do things for love that they wouldn't do for any other reason. Now, granted, parents, the sacrifices that parents make for their children, it's astounding. And I don't just mean, you know, the big things like, you know, running back into a burning house to save their child or running into a burning bus. I mean, that's heroic. But it's more to me, what impresses me is the daily grind. The father that took that money he saved for that new boat and put it into his kid's new braces. <laughs> the mother who's sitting alone on that one side of the courtroom with her son on trial for some horrendous crime and both her and her son and society knows this guy is a monster. He, they all know he's guilty. But despite that, she's sitting there every day on that side of the courtroom supporting her son because she doesn't want him to go through that alone. Love. Suffering the public humiliation. The public embarrassment of that out of love. People that that go to work every day at a job they hate to make enough money to keep their family going. Love. Uh, you know, a uh, car example. I've seen people put years into restoring a car that had no intrinsic value whatsoever. It's what we call a labor of love. 
I've talked to these guys, and I go, God, how many years did it take you to fix that up, or how much, how many thousands of dollars? And the guy goes, you know, they couldn't pay me enough <laughs> to do what I did to this car. If you had to pay me, I would have turned the job down. But I love the car, not because it's maybe a collector's item, because they had one like it in high school, or, you know, some deceased relative owned it. And be, that's what motivated them, to do things that they would do for no other reason than love. And that's how we're going to wrap this up today is simply with this, this understanding that because God is love, it's a package deal. You get more God, you get more love. You get more love, you get more God. And the way that God helps us to overcome our fear. Mike often re refers to the seventh step prayer in recovery. You know, the seventh step says, you know, that we ask God to remove our shortcomings. But in the prayer that is contained in that, it tells us the why of it. We ask God in part, Lord, please remove every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and to my fellows. I love that prayer because it's not saying, God, remove my defects because they're a thorn in my side. Please remove these defects because they bother me or prevent me from getting what I want. But rather, God, please remove these defects that keep me from serving you by serving my fellows. That makes sense. Because we will do things for others that we won't even do for ourselves sometimes. Why? Love. We'll ask the worship team to come up and wrap this up for us. And hopefully this... We take some comfort in the fact that it's in our weakness that we find the strength that we need. And I love the fact that we ourselves don't have to be spiritually buff and strong in order to find strength in him. Thank you. Lord, I think we'll close with the prayer that's given to us in Ephesians 3 where Paul wrote, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immensely more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.